Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to uh, the book of 1 Peter. Book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You'll find uh, the book of 1 Peter at the end of the New Testament, right after the books of Hebrew and James, and before 2 Peter, 1, 2, and 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. If you asked me to do so, I could generate for you in a fairly short period of time a rather lengthy list of why I think it would be great to be a superhero. Almost all of them have to do with superpowers. Flight would be great. So would be the ability to run at just under the speed of light. Or to have lightning fast reflexes such that you could uh, avoid bullets with ease. Having the strength and solidity to to bring a speeding train or a bus to an instantaneous halt with one hand could have its uses. Did I mention flight? Telekinesis, moving things with, with merely a thought, could be fun. And it would be nice to have the ability to heal almost any wound nearly as fast as I could sustain it. Also flying. Breathing underwater. The ability to control the weather. I'd even take the ability to generate spider webs from a gland in my wrist so that I could swing around downtown and avoid traffic lights and speed limits. I'd rather be able to fly, though. But on top of the superpowers, there's there's also the, the gratification, the satisfaction of being a force for good and justice. Imagine the impact that you could have on the local crime rate if you were bulletproof and strong enough to move a planet. Imagine the hope that you could inspire. Imagine the platform that you would gain. And I'm pretty sure that the local superhero eats for free at any neighborhood restaurant. He at least gets a pretty hefty discount. I could spend quite some time on that list expounding for you the multiple advantages of being a superhero. However, being a superhero would have its downsides, too. One of them is that the dress code seems to be limited to extremely colorful tights. But if that's the price that one has to pay for flight, I'd probably go along with it. The biggest downside, at least the consequence that gives me the greatest pause is the fact that superheroes are, by nature, strangers in the world. They, they don't fit in. They're not like us. They are, in effect, perpetual outsiders, never really fitting in with the rest of humanity. Batman may be the single greatest example of this. Batman is unique in that he does not possess any superhuman powers to aid him in his role as the protector of Gotham City in the DC comic book universe. 
Yet even without the powers that would naturally separate him from the people around him, simply by taking that role, by assuming that mantle, he forever placed himself on the outside of society. To save his city, he had to become something other than ordinary, something beyond the status quo. In order to save his city, he had to sacrifice his common humanity. His entire life is dedicated to this cause. The former life that he had as Bruce Wayne, the billionaire owner of Wayne Enterprises, has become merely a facade, a cover for his mission. And he has few friends. And even they must be kept at a distance for their safety and for his own. Everything, everything in his life is subordinate to his mission. Because of who they are, superheroes forever walk apart from the rest of the world. Which brings us to the book of First Peter. First Peter is a letter written to people who are strangers in the world. People who are being alienated from the places that they once called home and ostracized ridiculed, persecuted even, by the people that they once called family and friends. It's no easy thing to be alienated from the world around you. It seems that this world abhors what is different. It often fears it, even hates it at times. I imagine that if you were a superhero, you could take comfort in the fact that your, your strangeness is demonstrably good for society. You've, you've seen it in the faces of people that you've saved. But what do you do when you find yourself on the outside of society, not because you are superhuman, but because your beliefs have put you on the wrong side of popular opinion? What do you do when the culture and the society that you are trying to reach view you as part of the problem rather than as part of the solution? To frame the issue another way, how do we as Christians inject the gospel into our culture if we are increasingly perceived to be on the wrong side of history? What voice do we have if we are known as bigots, as fools, as intolerant, as homophobic, as threats to personal freedom and pleasure? How do we change the culture from the inside out if we're stuck on the outside looking in? These were questions being faced by Peter's audience. And while we're not experiencing persecution on the scale that these first century Christians were, these questions are becoming more and more relevant in our cultural context. Peter's aim in writing this letter was to encourage these believers to help them understand why they were suffering and give them a means to live out their faith in a way that honored Jesus Christ. First Peter is a book about the church in the world. How do we interact with it? How do we respond to it in a way that points them to Christ? How do we live out our faith in the midst of opposition? This book can help us think through these issues. Pastor Joel has graciously given me opportunities to preach throughout the summer, and I want to take those opportunities 
to look at a few different sections of this book and think through some of these issues. This morning, we're going to look at Peter's greeting. He begins by identifying himself and the letter's recipients. They are Christians residing in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That would now be modern-day Turkey, most of modern-day Turkey. It's a possibility that Peter's connection to these believers goes back to Pentecost. On that occasion, Peter preached a sermon in the temple shortly after the Holy Spirit had come upon him and the other disciples. And Luke tells us there, there were people from many different nations in the temple that day. And Peter preached to them, and he likely spoke to them in Aramaic or Greek. But Luke tells us that all these people that were present miraculously heard him speaking in their native language. Luke records for us in Acts 2.9 that there were people present from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, the same region to which he directs this letter. Peter directs this letter. Whatever Peter's connection to these believers might have been, he tells us his purpose for writing in 1 Peter 5.12. He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. News had apparently reached Peter that these Christians living in this area were being persecuted for their faith. We don't know the extent of the persecution that they were facing, but given some of the notable periods of persecution in the first century, it's possible that these Christians were suffering to the point of death. Some of them may have lost friends or loved ones. Some of them possibly suffered beatings or imprisonment for their faith, and it's very likely that they were, they were experiencing economic struggles for their faith. Possibly having been banned from selling goods in the marketplace or even buying goods in the marketplace. It has also been suggested that Peter's audience may have been predominantly composed of Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians may have once been members of the church in Jerusalem, forced to flee to this region now because of persecution in Jerusalem. But beyond the physical struggles inherent in persecution, there's often a theological struggle that develops. And for these people, it would have been something along these lines. If we are being obedient to God, why are we suffering for it? If we're being obedient to God, why are we suffering for it? My children learned with astonishing speed that dessert is a reward for and contingent upon the completion of one's dinner and milk at dinner time in our household. No eats, no treats. That's the rule. It comes as no surprise to them then that when they complete their dinner, when they finish their milk, they are rewarded with some heavenly gift for their palate, like a, a cookie, something like that. It would be a shock to them, however, if they finished their dinner, drank the last bit of their milk, and I handed them a bowl of lima beans or proceeded to give them a spanking. In their experience and worldview, the act of dinnertime obedience should result in satisfaction, possibly even a reward, but certainly not pain and suffering. Obedience that leads to suffering would make no sense to them. And that was what these believers were struggling with. 
and why Peter writes to encourage them. And he tackles the issue immediately, laying out the fundamental principle to help them understand and think through their circumstances in the very greeting of his letter. In these opening verses, the greeting of his letter, Peter goes directly to the gospel. of the gospel. It's, it's probably not one that you're really familiar with. This is not a, a, a familiar format. To begin with, there's no mention of sin. And there's no direct reference to Christ's death for those sins. And there's no appeal for us to believe in Christ for forgiveness of those sins. The reason for that is what Peter is presenting here is a one-sided gospel. He is focusing exclusively on the redemptive work of God in the gospel. His concern and his emphasis is not on what God has saved us from, but how and what God has saved us to. Peter's gospel here is a predominantly God-oriented or a a God-centered gospel. It's a gospel presentation meant to shift our perspective. It's a gospel presentation meant to comfort people who are keenly aware that they are aliens and strangers in the world. Peter gives us three ways that the gospel comforts us as strangers in the world. Three ways that the gospel comforts us. Number one, it shows us what God is like. Two, it shows us what God has done And three, it shows us who we are as a result. It shows us what God is like, what God has done, and who we are as a result. First of all, it shows us what God is like. In this gospel, Peter highlights the fact that God is profoundly personal. And this characteristic is manifested in his foreknowledge and his work of election. The theological terms for God the Father's work in redemption, in, in the gospel. God's work of calling Christians to himself is what is alluded to when Peter refers to his audience as the elect. To elect means to choose, to exercise the will, to prefer. We're, we're familiar with elections wherein we, we elect, we choose a particular candidate. It's an expression of our will and our preference. The elect are the chosen ones. And in this context, as it's fleshed out in verse 2, elect signifies an act of God's sovereign will based on his divine prerogative. It signifies purpose, desire, preference, willfulness. Peter says God's foreknowledge is the basis of our election and God's choosing. On the most basic level, foreknowledge means that God knew us before he created the world. Peter tells us that we are chosen as a result of this foreknowledge. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.4 that we were chosen by God before the creation of the world. Scripture testifies that God's knowledge is exhausted. He knows all that can be known from one end of eternity to the other. Anything that can be known is known by God. In terms of his knowledge of humanity, this knowledge is deeply personal. 
Psalm 139 actually has this idea as its theme. And we won't turn there this morning, but I want to point out to you a couple points from that psalm that are are relevant to this sermon. Verse 2 tells us that he perceives our thoughts from afar. Verse 3 says he's familiar with all of our ways. Verse 16, all the days ordained for us were written in his book before one of them came to be. And perhaps the most poignant, in in verse 1 it says he has searched us and he knows us. That word for know in Psalm 139 is actually the same word used in Genesis 4.1 as a euphemism for the intimacy between Adam and Eve. It's used as a euphemism there because it conveys intimacy. It's, it's personal. In the act of marital intimacy, barriers are removed, secrets are disclosed, and deep and powerful fellowship is experienced. In the context of Psalm 139, this this knowledge is not sexual in nature, but it is intimate, personal, and total. It's it's as if our entire self is laid bare before God. And that is, at once, I think, a terrible and a comforting thought. It's terrible because nothing that we can think or say or do can be hidden from God. In fact, it was known by God before we were even created. It's almost invasive. The psalmist says he cannot get away from God. He cannot flee from his presence. It's it's sort of everything that I would like to be when when my daughters start taking an interest in boys. It's everywhere present and everything knowing. The sins that fill us with shame are known by Him in their totality. He knows the wickedness in our hearts even better than we do. We cannot hide it from Him. And His work of election, His choosing, is based on this foreknowledge. That's terrifying. If he chose us based on our merit, we would, every one of us in this room, be doomed. But the choice is is made based on God's character, not our character. And this is a comfort to Christians because the God who searches us and knows us from before he created the world, who is fully aware of our every thought and deed, chooses us to be his Anyway, if you are a Christian, if you have professed faith in Christ, if you believe the message of the gospel that you who once were separated from God because of your sin have been brought near by the blood of Christ, that his literal physical resurrection from the dead signified the acceptance of his sacrifice on your behalf, you have not done so by accident. You did not sneak in. You didn't pull a fast one on God. This has been his eternal plan for you. It's his plan that you, whom he loved with an everlasting, unconquerable, boundless love, should not be eternally estranged from him because of your sin. 
He has chosen you with no illusions, no misinformation, with full awareness of who you are and what you are like. It is by grace you have been saved. To those rejected by society, to those who feel like strangers in the world, the gospel presents to us a God who knows us intimately and chooses us personally. Secondly, the gospel comforts us as strangers in the world by showing what God has done. Showing us what God has done. The gospel tells us that God the Father has called us to himself. He has chosen us to be his people. But that is by no means the end of the work of the gospel in our lives. As Peter says in verse 2, our election is carried out through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. I want to keep, have you keep your finger here in 1 Peter Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. You'll find that right after the Gospels in the book of Acts. Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. Another one of Christ's apostles, the Apostle Paul, talks about uh, the work of the Gospel in our lives in these verses. Romans 8, 29 to 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The culmination of God's sovereign choosing and election is the work of the gospel. It is the transformation of a fallen, sinful human being who is by nature at home in a fallen and sinful world and alienated from God into a justified and glorified human being whose allegiance is no longer held by sin and the world, but by God. We are ultimately chosen by God to be conformed to the image of he who is the purest and most perfect expression of God's righteousness, love, justice, and grace. Jesus Christ. The work of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ is the work of the Spirit in the Gospel. If I can say it this way, God's election sets us apart positionally, and the work of the Spirit in sanctification sets us apart progressively. Election sets the vision for what will ultimately be reality, And sanctification brings that reality into being progressively. By setting the gospel before his readers, Peter is giving them the goal, the vision, the the object of their election. I enjoy doing jigsaw puzzles. And the bigger, the better. But inevitably, when I'm doing a jigsaw puzzle, I will reach a point of frustration and hopelessness. The pieces are scattered all over the table. I don't know where they fit. The sections that I do have together don't fit together. They're not coming together into one gigantic picture like they should. I'm convinced that I'm missing half of the pieces that I need. And I keep coming back to this one rotten piece that looks like it should fit right here, but it doesn't. In those instances, the thing that helps me most is to take a step back and look at the picture on the cover of the box. Seeing what the final picture will look like not only gives me hope, it gives me direction. 
Peter here assures us that we are being sanctified by the Spirit. That which God has called us to is being made into a reality in His power, in His plan, and in His timing. Seeing that vision, knowing that it will be made into a reality, helps me to persevere. It helps me to continue in my circumstances. It helps me to see those circumstances as a means to bringing that end about. Knowing that it will add up to the final picture. Even when I feel like a stranger in the world. And finally, the gospel comforts us as strangers in the world by showing us who we are as a result. We are God's elect. Strangers in the world. The phrase strangers in the world is a translation of a single word. It means sojourner or alien. It pictures an individual who is foreign to, to the people around him or her. It's someone who is, is living in a people or a country that is not their own. God's elect do not have a home in this world. They do not belong. That is the cost of Christianity. But the cost isn't the point. On, on some level, every Christian knows that they are a stranger in the world. We, we all know that. We know that our citizenship is in heaven, that our allegiance is to Christ, that this world is temporary. On some level, we, we all know that. But Peter's point is not to state the obvious. His main point in these verses is that our alien nature, our strangeness, our distinctiveness from the world around us is not merely a consequence or a side effect of the gospel in our lives. It's the whole idea We are not strangers in the world by accident because we just happen to be born in an age that just doesn't get us. What Peter is saying is that God sets out to make us strangers in the world through the gospel. We are out of place in this world because we have been transformed by the gospel. Our alienation in this world is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. Why is it that these first century Christians stood out? Why is it that we stand out more and more in the midst of a rapidly changing culture? Because the work of the gospel is to take a self-centered human being like myself and make them God-centered. In the background of the final aspect of the gospel that Peter lays out here in these two verses is the covenant that God established with Israel in Exodus 24. It was confirmed in a ceremony. In that ceremony, Moses took uh, some young bulls and he sacrificed them. And he took the blood from those sacrifices. And half of it he used to sprinkle the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people of Israel. And they responded after he read it by saying, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the remaining blood from the bulls and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood represented forgiveness, cleansing. It it ultimately looked forward to the blood of Christ 
And the people of Israel entered into the covenant by being purified by the blood and submitting obediently to God. Through the gospel, believers are brought into a new covenant with God, one that they enter through obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling purification by his blood. That is the goal of the gospel. To set us apart as the people of God, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and obedient to him as God. The gospel changes our priorities, our values, and our lifestyles to reflect the character of God himself in a fallen and lost world. In effect, we are strangers because through the gospel, we have changed sides. I want you to keep your finger here again in 1 Peter. Flip back a few books to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is a book written by Paul, but he and Peter actually preach the same consequence of the gospel. Ephesians 2, we'll start reading in verse 1. This is before the gospel. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now here's the gospel. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So what happens? Let's skip down to verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Our citizenship has changed. Once we were fellow citizens of this earthly kingdom and alienated from God because of our sins, but now, in the gospel, we are strangers in the world and we are God's chosen people. God has called us to himself. That is why we are strangers. Peter closes his greeting with a blessing on his readers that's very appropriate. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. If the gospel were an engine, grace would be the fuel that makes it run. We're we're chosen by God in his grace. By God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are sanctified, we're set apart, we're made holy. And his grace... uh, we are, we are cleansed by grace through the blood of Christ. And Peter likely has in mind the idea that we will persevere in our circumstances. We will continue to be obedient through the grace that God provides. Peace is the outcome of the gospel. While it may seem ironic for Peter to wish peace on a people that are suffering persecution, it's a reminder that through the gospel, they ultimately have peace. Peace with God in abundance. This blessing from Peter actually echoes the priestly blessing 
from Numbers 6.24 to 26. That was the blessing that the priests were to give God's chosen people. They would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the goodness of God to us. That God has called us to himself. That he has set us apart from the rest of the world. And even though we may suffer hostility as strangers in the world, grace and peace are ours in abundance. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are with me in this room this morning. I do not know the particular circumstances that you have called them to, Father, but I do know that you have called them to be strangers in the world and obedient to Christ. Father, however that may flesh itself out in your sovereign plan, whether it be through fiery trials of persecution or simply withstanding the malaise of our culture that leads to apathy. Father, comfort them with the truths found in the gospel. Give them a vision of who you are. Father, give them grace. Give them the grace to become in reality what you have called them to be. A people set apart for you, strangers in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.